Good morning, I'm Pastor Steve, and we are in a series in the book of Matthew this winter months, and I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 9. We'll be looking this morning at Matthew 9, verse 9, down through verse 17. We've noted in our study thus far that Jesus really has a threefold approach to his ministry. He is preaching. We read in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's teaching and we see a a long teaching time that Jesus did on a hillside in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. And he has been healing and we we saw that in Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 17 and other verses uh, throughout the book. And all of that preaching and teaching and healing really has one central purpose. And that is to demonstrate, to show who Jesus is. That he is Messiah. Now, when we say that he is Messiah, that's a very specific term that has a very specific meaning. The Hebrew word is actually the word Messiah. If you'd read it in Hebrew, that's the word, Messiah. It means anointed one. In the Greek language, there is an an equivalent term, which is Christ. And so the word Christ means the same thing that the word Messiah means. It means the anointed one. And that specifically goes back to passages like 2 Samuel 7. Where God made a very specific promise to King David. He told David that one of his descendants would sit on his royal throne forever and ever over a kingdom that's marked by righteousness and justice. And that that son of David would actually be known as the son of God. Everything that Matthew records for us, Jesus preaching, his teaching, and his healing, aims at demonstrating that Jesus is indeed this promised king. This one who will sit on David's throne over God's kingdom forever and ever. As God's son, Jesus has authority. And we've been seeing in recent weeks, Jesus calling people to be his followers with that authority. And today we're going to see Jesus come to a man named Matthew, who's actually the human author of this book, and call Matthew to be his follower. And in that calling, we will be reminded of Jesus' overall purpose in his ministry. And that is to save sinners. I'm going to read these verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. But watch for Jesus' overall purpose 
to save sinners through his ministry. I'll start reading in Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the worst tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved." So as we unfold these verses today, one of the things that we'll see is Jesus' heart for people. And Jesus' heart for those who are lost to find salvation from their sin. Right from Matthew's very beginning of his record of this book, we've seen that as Jesus' mission, Jesus' purpose. Clear back in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 we read this. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The problem is is that Israel's leadership missed it. They missed Jesus' purpose. They missed Jesus' mission. And I think one of the reasons why they missed it Is that they did not see themselves as needing it. They didn't see themselves as needing a savior. They didn't view themselves as sinners who needed salvation. This spring is kind of a sad time. For my wife Barbara and I. Because the college that we both attended is closing. Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. Both of us have a long history there. Barbara's mother and father attended there. Barbara's siblings attended there. My father taught there from 1967 to 1971. And then he was the president of that school from 1971 to 1984. I went there. Barbara went there. And it's closing. My father-in-law contacted me this week and said, what are they, they're trying to figure out what to do with all of the president's portraits, these large portraits, and he's bringing it to me because they don't want to throw them in the dumpster. 
We have lots of fond memories of that place. My life was changed there. Speakers in chapel, missionaries that would come and visit, uh, challenged us and molded us. And my fellow students challenged us and molded us. In some ways, they didn't even know that they did. You know how God sometimes brings people into your life and it actually becomes kind of a milestone in your life, kind of a marker that having had an interface with that person changed you? And God has brought a multitude of people into my life that have had that effect. One afternoon I was at the college and I was headed out to the parking lot to get into my my pickup. You know, that everybody needs a pickup. And that was my first vehicle, 1974 Dodge pickup, three speed on the column. That's what my that's why my wife fell in love with me. She wanted my pickup. <laughs> and I was getting into my pickup, a little rusty, but it ran good. Getting into my pickup, and uh this girl came toward me, didn't know who she was, and she was just crying profusely. And and through her tears asked if I would take her to the bus station. And I said, sure, I'll take you to the bus station. And she got into my pickup. And as we drove, I tried to talk with her and ask, you know, why, what's wrong? And she went on to say, well, I don't belong here at Grace. And I said, why do you think that? And she said, because I'm too much of a sinner. And she was just crying. And I tried to encourage her to remain. And I'm not sure if she came back or what. I I don't even remember her name. But that left a mark on me. And I thought about her and wondered what's happening in her life. I think what was happening is that she was comparing herself to other students. But what she was comparing herself to was externals. She looked at her own life and then she looked at lives of other students who appeared to have everything together and appeared to have this great walk with Christ. And she didn't feel like she matched up. It'll be interesting one day when she stands before her Lord because My gut tells me she may have been closer to Jesus than many of those students with whom she compared herself. Because one thing was for sure. She saw her own brokenness. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3? In Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think poor in spirit means those who are broken. And Jesus in those chapters, in chapter 5, 6, and 7, made it very clear that the only people who will enter God's kingdom are those who clearly see that they're not eligible to enter God's kingdom. Those who are broken spiritually. Those who see that they're a sinner. Those who clearly know I need mercy and I need grace. And this young woman clearly saw how much she needed Jesus. 
Well, today we're going to look at two different groups of people, both of whom who approach Jesus with a critical spirit. The first group are the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And we're going to see them in verses 9 through 13. And it's interesting what we're going to see. There's a, there's a, a very much a, a biblical principle that we can extract from these verses. And here it is. Sinners who follow Jesus in faith are made righteous. But the self-righteous who reject Jesus remain sinners. Let that sink in a little. Sinners who follow Jesus in faith are made righteous. But the self-righteous who reject Jesus remain sinners. We knew from chapter 9 verse 1 that Jesus had gotten back into a boat with his disciples. Went back across the Sea of Galilee to his home turf, Capernaum. And as we come to chapter 9, verse 9, it tells us in chapter 9, verse 9, that Jesus went on from there. Most likely, he now is stepping out into the outskirts outside of Capernaum. We know, as, as he has done that, that he comes across a tax collector named Matthew. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke also talk about this calling of Matthew. In Mark chapter 2 verses 15 and 17. And Luke chapter 5 verses 29 through 32. Both Mark and Luke refer to him as Levi. Now that's not a problem. In this day, in that in that Hebrew world, it was very common for someone to have more than one name. It's the same guy, Matthew and Levi. One of my uncles, his name, his given name was Gary. But everyone in the family called him Butch. I think it's because he was the guy who butchered the animals up at Barrett's Superette down the road. And on certain nights of the week, people would bring their cows and their hogs and their sheep in. And he'd butcher them. And so, I don't know if my dad started that or what. But I knew him as Uncle Butch. His wife called him Gary. Everybody else called him Butch. He had two names. So does Levi here. Matthew. Same guy. So Jesus comes across Matthew, who's a tax collector. Now, if you want to be popular in that day, don't become a tax collector. Everybody hated the tax collectors for two reasons. One, even though Matthew is an Israelite, he's Jewish, he would be viewed as a traitor because he worked for the Roman government and Israelites hated Rome. So right from the start, just because of his job, people hated him. You traitor, you Roman complicitor, we hate you. Secondly, most of them were cheaters. What they would do is say, okay, you owe this amount of money for your taxes this year. Really, they just owed this much and he pocketed the difference. So They were not popular. In fact, it's really interesting. If you look down at verse 11, when the Pharisees come, it says, why is your teacher eating with, and then the little article, the, the 
tax collectors and sinners. Now this stands out in the Greek New Testament because the little word the only occurs once. Meaning it's lumping tax collectors and sinners into one group. In the Pharisees' eyes, they're the same thing. If you're a tax collector, you're a sinner. That you're one lump. So Jesus comes to this quote-unquote sinner, this Israelite named Matthew, and says to him, follow me. And it tells us in verse 9 that he got up and followed him. Now, Matthew, the author of this book, is the guy that Jesus is talking to right here. And we see throughout the book that Matthew is very humble. He refers to himself continually as Matthew the tax collector. If I was a guy that no longer was a tax collector, I'd lose that, I'd lose that title right away. But Matthew continues to refer to himself that way. Luke tells us, in Luke chapter 5 verse 28, He lifts Matthew up on a pedestal and says in verse 28, and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. You see, Luke understands that when Matthew decided to follow Jesus, he left money behind. He left a lucrative career behind. He left behind everything so that he could follow Jesus. We also see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Matthew is excited about Jesus Christ. In fact, even though it's kind of implicit here in verses 9 and 10, because verse 10 says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, we kind of assume that it's Matthew's house here in the book of Matthew. If you go to Mark chapter 2 verse 15 and Luke chapter 5 verse 29, it's really clear. In fact, I'll just read Luke 529 it says this and Levi or Matthew gave a big reception for him Jesus in his house and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people so Matthew is so excited about Jesus that he invites all his friends over one of the most exciting things about people coming to faith in Jesus is that most often, especially when an adult comes to faith in Jesus, they have an entire network of people around them who don't know Jesus either. And they have that whole network of people with whom they can share about Jesus and share their excitement of their newfound faith in him. And that's what Matthew's doing. Oh, come and meet this This one Jesus. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Come on over. And so Jesus is at this party. With all of Matthew's friends. And along come the Pharisees. With a critical spirit. And the Pharisees. Seek out Jesus disciples. Those he's called already. And this is what they say. When the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overhears this. And this is what Jesus says. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. By that, Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees are spiritually healthy. 
He's actually saying the opposite because we see that in the next verse. What he's saying is that they think they're healthy. In fact, if you look at the next verse, he tells the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. Back in the book of Hosea, God is confronting through the prophet Hosea, Israel's leaders. And he's telling them, you're hanging on to this outward formality of religiosity. But your hearts are far from God. And so Jesus, by quoting Hosea 6.6, is saying the same thing to the Pharisees. God desires compassion. In the Hebrew language, that's our very special term. We talk about it a lot. Chesed. It's the one where you have to kind of spit as you say it. Chesed. It's talking about loyal love. And when it's used of God, it's talking about God's loyal love for his people. He, His covenant people, he always does what he says he will do with his covenant people. And what God is telling Israel's leadership in Hosea 6.6, and what Jesus is telling the Pharisees, is God wants to see that same kind of love in the hearts of his people today. That That he doesn't want just a shell of religiosity. What he's looking at is on the inside. He wants people's hearts committed to him. Loving him. He wants chesed. Not externals. Not their religiosity. Their religious practice. You see. These Pharisees. Had an underlying philosophy. They thought that Messiah is coming. They knew Messiah is coming. But in their minds Messiah was coming to punish sinners. Those people. They didn't see themselves as sinners at all. And while we don't have Pharisees. Literal Pharisees living amongst us like they did in Jesus' day. It's good for us, as we look at a passage like this, to ask ourselves, am I ever thinking like a Pharisee? What's that look like? What's it look like to think like a Pharisee? Well, from these verses, one thing. That shows that a person's thinking like a Pharisee is if we as Christians are exhibiting, holding on to disgust toward a non-Christian. If we are holding a non-Christian with disgust, if we, if we have disgust toward what they think and what they do as a person, we're acting like a Pharisee. One of the things that Barb and I continue to remind ourselves is when we see a non-Christian acting like a non-Christian is simply these words, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's very clear. And this is what he says to us 
in 1 Corinthians 5 about verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Or with covetous and swindlers. Or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So Paul's making a distinction here. He's saying, if we hold non-Christians away from us and hold them with an away from us with an attitude of disgust, how will we ever have an impact on them? We're, in a sense, removing ourselves from them. That's not what he meant. He said, when a person claims to be a Jesus follower, a Christian, and they're living like the world, that's when we need to confront them. That's when we need to call them back to living for Jesus Christ. And if we, as a Christian, hold someone in disgust because of them as a non-Christian, acting like a non-Christian... We're thinking more like a Pharisee than like Jesus. Because Jesus went to the banquet. Jesus spent time with them. Why? Because he saw them as needy and helpless. He saw them as needing what he had to offer. Forgiveness. You see the Pharisees. Didn't even see themselves as sinners. Several years ago, my wife asked me for her birthday for me to give her a weed whacker. And I've got a great wife. How many wives say, can I, would you get me a weed whacker for my birthday? You know what, dear? It's against my better judgment, but okay, I'll get you a weed whacker. Now, We come from two different schools in our backgrounds. Because my dad believed buy the absolute best that you can afford within reason. And then maintain it. Oh man, we had charts for maintenance. You can't believe the maintenance that we did at our house. You never put a tool away dirty. We had these charts and all the maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. But start out with good stuff. That's what my dad thought. I think Barbara thought I was going to go to Menards and buy something for $29.95 that would maybe make it through one season. Nope. I bought her a steal. You say I love you with steel. I got her a steel straight shaft weed whacker. And it performs. I mean, she gets so much joy out of using her weed whacker, you can't believe it. She just smiles. I can see her out there around the pond just smiling using the weed whacker. We're a steel family. When it came time for me to buy a chainsaw, Barbara and I went together. We bought a steel. She thinks I should let her use it, but I'm not going to. She, I, I heard her feelings, but nope, you can use the weed whacker, not the chainsaw. Using the chainsaw is exhausting. I go out, I just, a couple weeks ago, I had to cut up a log, it was, fell out on our pond, I went out on the ice, just ran it for an hour. I was so tired. When I learned, when you get tired, quit. Learn some other things. Like make sure you keep the tension on the chain taut, nice and tight. Because if the chain ever comes off of the bar, you damage the chain. 
and it won't fit back on properly. You actually have to take it in and it creates some little burrs and stuff. They have to, in a sense, they have to realign it onto the bar. And sometimes we have some realigning that we need to do as Christians as well. If you and I start sensing that we are viewing people more like a Pharisee than like Jesus, then it's time for us to realign our hearts with Jesus. One of the best ways we can do that, if we start thinking like a Pharisee, if we start becoming critical of a non-Christian for acting like a non-Christian, you can't expect Christian behavior out of a person who doesn't know Jesus. And if we start becoming critical of a non-Christian for acting like a non-Christian, it's time for us to confess that to the Father and for us to say, Father, help me see people as you see them. Give me your heart of compassion and love. Give me opportunities to talk with this person about Jesus and who he is and how he's changed my life. It's realigning our hearts with his heart. Now, we see a second group of critical people here in these verses. And that comes in verses 14 through 17. The first critical people were Pharisees. The second set of critical people are John the Baptist's disciples. And that surprises us. Remember John the Baptist, he was out in the wilderness calling people to repentance. He was a forerunner of Jesus. In fact, he was pointing people to Jesus. I'm not the Messiah, he is. Put your faith in him. But what's happened after John the Baptist's arrest is that some of John the Baptist's disciples still have not put their faith in Jesus. They're hanging on to the outward forms of their religion and they have not yet entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ by putting their faith in him. And because they're hanging on to forms of religion and not experiencing the joy of a relationship, they're critical. So on the scene they come. At some point after the Pharisees had attacked Jesus for eating with the sinners, it tells us in verse 14, then the disciples of John come on the scene. And they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They're observing some of the set-aside days within the Israelite calendar for fasting. They're hanging on to not only the Old Testament law, but over hundreds of years, the scribes and the teachers of the law and the rabbis have added a whole bunch more restrictions, more than even what the Old Testament asks for. And so, as John the Baptist's followers feel like they are really devout now because they've confessed their sin and they're trying to seek after God, they're looking at Jesus' followers and say, hey, they're not even following the rules. And Jesus says to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? 
It's interesting in the Old Testament, there's several passages where God says that he is Israel's groom. Isaiah chapter 54 verses 5 and 6. Isaiah chapter 62 verses 4 and 5. Hosea chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. I'll read those with you quickly. Where God is the groom in Hosea chapter 2 verse 19 says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. So God in the Old Testament puts himself in the terms that he uses as the groom. Jesus here, once again, as Messiah, the son of God, saying, I'm the groom. When the groom, when God has come amongst you, it's not time to be sorrowful. It's not time to mourn. Look at the uh, the second half of verse 15. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is Taken away from them. And then they will fast. I think Jesus here is referring. To the fact that he is. in It's in the passive. An outside force is going to take him away. From his disciples. I think he's referring to the cross. He's referring to the cross work. And his ultimate cross work and resurrection. What Jesus is saying is this. The king has come. The groom is with his bride. It's not time for mourning. There will be a time, a brief time for sadness when he's taken away, when he goes to the cross. And if we go to the book of Acts, then we see Jesus' disciples fasting and praying. But he says, now everything is new. The king has come. There's a new covenant that all of this Religious shall that the Pharisees have added to the Old Testament law. That's going to be in the rearview mirror. And because of the upcoming cross and Jesus' resurrection, everything is new. He goes on with a couple of illustrations here. He says, you don't put an old patch of unshrunk cloth. You don't put a new patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Otherwise, when that patch shrinks, it's going to tear the garment. And then goes on, talks about wineskins. This is really cool. In that time frame, if you wanted to make something to carry your liquid in, they would kill an animal. It was almost like a designer flask. Like, hey, let's go get a badger and make a wine flask. And so they would kill the badger and then they would sew it up. So maybe like where the badger's neck was, that was the opening for the wine. They would tan the inside of the leather and then they'd put their wine in there. So you could walk around town and say, hey, look at my badger flask. Or I guess that's what you do if you're from Wisconsin. If you're from Minnesota, you'd have a gopher you're walking around with. So what would happen is then after amount of time, that skin would harden and it would become like more like, it would almost be like, uh, a hard-sided uh, flask. And if that, if you took that and put unfermented wine into it or partially fermented wine into it, the gases from the fermentation process would break it. What's Jesus' point? Now that he's actually here 
and he's going to the cross and it's going to rise from the dead, everything's new. You see, John's disciples are critical because they don't have any joy in their life. Because they have not experienced what it's like to be in relationship with a person of Jesus Christ. This coming September, September 3rd, Barbara and I will have been married 35 years. We got married at Zor Mennonite Brethren Church in Inman, Kansas. And I love how we did our wedding. Uh, I, I've been kind of a one-man band trying to get couples to tend toward simplicity. And so we had our wedding. As, we did, as soon as the wedding was done, we went downstairs to the church basement where we had buns with some meat on it and the ladies in church made salad and a cake. Wham, bam, we eat our food and boom, we're off on our honeymoon. That's the way to go. That's Steve's philosophy. You can chuck it after the service is done. But... I was anxious to go on my honeymoon. So we had a nice little spread there, but it was really simple. Now, normally I'm pretty particular about my food. Like I care about the condiments. I don't like generics, like generic ketchup, generic mayo. Some things, you know, like your medication, fine, generic's fine, but not in mayo and ketchup. You know, get the good stuff in mayo and ketchup. Like right now, we have been using this, uh, this, this brand of mayo called Dukes. It's a hundred year old company. It's fantastic. So, you know, I like good condiments. Now, on my wedding day, as I've just said I do with my beautiful bride, and we came down the church basement steps and we walk into that reception hall, you know what? I didn't care what kind of mayo there was on the table. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't care if it was generic, non-generic. Why? Because it's my wedding day. This is a day of joy. She finally said yes. It's my wedding day. There's joy. I, we're at peace. It was just fantastic. And what Jesus is saying to John the Baptist's disciples is... I'm here now. And I'm inviting people into a relationship. And in that relationship, there's un, there's boundless joy and peace. In fact, Jesus' disciples in John 14 were just heartbroken when Jesus was telling them that he was going to leave them. And what did Jesus tell them? He said to them that he's not going to leave them alone. And in John 14 verse 16 he said, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And in verse 25 he says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things, bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled or let it be fearful. You see, when we are in relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, whether like the disciples here, he's physically next to them. Or like us as followers of Jesus, at the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ... Believing that he is God who died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. At that moment, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 that the Holy Spirit comes into us and permanently dwells there. 
Here's Jesus' point. The followers of John the Baptist still were not in relationship with Jesus. Therefore, they're critical. What happens when I start getting a critical spirit? Maybe, as we saw in the first verses, I start becoming critical of non-Christians because they're acting like non-Christians. I've got a buddy who's pastoring a church right now, and his church is critical of him because he's wanting the church to reach out to non-Christians. And the church leadership is saying, well, we've got needs inside our walls. You see, that's thinking more like a Pharisee than it is thinking like Jesus. And when we find that we're becoming critical, oftentimes it's because we need a realignment with Jesus. Because when we're walking with him, when we are sharing his heart and his mind, there's lots of joy there. There's lots of peace there. And we can, when we start recognizing that critical spirit, is a time for us to say, okay, I need a realignment. I need to come back to him and Father, just help me see people as you see them. Help me experience the joy of the Spirit of God in my life. The peace of the Spirit of God in my life today. You see, these self-righteous Pharisees missed Jesus' mission. They didn't understand how he thought. They didn't understand his heart. Because when we see his heart, we see God having a heart for people. His mission to save sinners. Father, we thank you for these verses and the reminder of what it is to follow after Jesus and think like he thinks. Help us as a church family to really seek after Jesus' heart. Help us as a church family to see people as you see them. And we ask that you give us your heart of compassion for, for lost people. That we would not push them away, but actually would rather be like Matthew. Inviting people to the banquet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.